Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, January 31st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Carrie Byron. She's one of the firecracker hosts of the popular Discovery Channel show Mythbusters. And she's one of the few female visible science entertainers that is also a fellow artist. She's a sculptor, which in my opinion is probably the most badass of all the arts. You know, you get to wield fire and make things that are massive and potentially blow up, which we've seen in her show. Um, And so with her great experience of blowing things up for science, she has a sense of adventure that is unmatched. Along with the other co-hosts, she successfully put the curiosity back into science education. The whole idea behind the show is that we're not scientists. We're using science as a tool and it's not, you know, a talking head telling you facts. It's watching regular Joes kind of experience the problem. And it just happens to be that the best way to explore myth is uh, the scientific method. It's the perfect narrative. Indra, I loved listening to this interview. I loved uh, her enthusiasm. It's very infectious. And maybe it had me thinking the success of Mythbusters has something to do with the collision of these great personalities with a great concept, which is, of course, testing out myths. There's another point that I was thinking as I listened to the interview and this clip. Last week, we had Eugenie Scott, and she noted that Bill Nye, as an entertainer, might be better at debating creationists than a PhD scientist, well, maybe something similar goes for Mythbusters. As entertainers, they might be actually better at science popularization. Well, you know, in reality TV, I think one of the keys to success is to ensure that the hosts are relatable, that the audience can feel as though, you know, they could hang out with any one of these people and watch them go through these bizarre experiences as if they might be experiencing them themselves. And I have to say, Carrie is super fun to hang out with. Um, But more than that, her almost childlike delight in discovering and building things from scratch um, seems to really capture the essence of science. And that essence is often missing in the classroom or in the layperson's understanding of science, which is often thought of as reductionist, square, and boring. Plus, one other great thing about her is that I was watching some Mythbusters clips, and boy, do they nerd hard. Like, you know, it's it's amazing. They're dressing up and, you know, they're dressing up like Star Wars characters and then they're actually like running a gauntlet of zombies. So 
<laughs> I mean, it is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's definitely a passion for nerdery in, in addition to science. <laughs> so that will be our interview this week. But first, it turns out we have something new, a little new for the show, a short piece from our friend and multimedia producer at Mother Jones, Brett Brownell. Now, Brett is kind of fascinated with the subject of exoplanets. I mean, who isn't, right? And it turns out that we're getting better and better at studying them and imaging them. And this is an improvement that ultimately could lead us to finding a habitable one or maybe even an inhabited one. And so for this show, Brett actually filed a report for us about a scientist who's at the center of finding out a better way of studying all the planets of the universe. 25 years ago, we didn't know if planets existed beyond our solar system. For all we knew at the time, Pluto was where we should draw the line. But scientists and astronomers persisted in their search, and we now have confirmation of more than 1,000 extrasolar planets, or exoplanets, orbiting stars far from our solar system. Meanwhile, some astronomers are predicting an Earth 2.0 discovery is soon to come. Most of the initial exoplanet discoveries were made indirectly. Astronomers would measure changes in a star's brightness or position in order to deduce an orbiting planet. And on rare occasions, they would directly observe or photograph these planets. But recent improvements in technology have allowed for faster and faster discovery by astronomers. One such astronomer is Dr. Bruce McIntosh, a physicist at Stanford University who led the development of the Chile-based Gemini Planet Imager, or GPI. GPI uses a large 8-meter telescope outfitted with thousands of tiny actuators, a type of motor, that allow a much more clear view from the ground than ever before. He and his team recently released their first light images from GPI, one of which was a mysterious blue image of a small bright planet which lives about 63 light years from Earth. I visited Dr. McIntosh at his Stanford office where he explained the process called adaptive optics, which allows them to see incredibly clear images even through our turbulent atmosphere. Adaptive optics is a way to correct for the distortions that the Earth's atmosphere induces. If you look up at a star through the Earth's atmosphere, it twinkles because turbulence and temperature fluctuations in the air are bending and distorting the wavefronts of light on the way on their way to you. And of course, that's why, for example, you might launch the Hubble Space Telescope to be above that turbulence. As an alternative approach, if you can measure those distortions fast enough, we can build tiny mirrors that change their shape a thousand times a second to cancel out those distortions and bring the object back into to sharp focus. With this technology in hand, Dr. McIntosh and his team decided they would use a previously seen planet that was orbiting around the star Beta Pictoris for one of their first tests. We found with previous generation of telescopes like the planet on Beta Pictoris. So it's about five to 10 times the mass of Jupiter in our solar system. It's a very young planet. And so we're seeing it in infrared radiation. It's hot and glowing, um, freshly formed. It was discovered um, five to 10 years ago by the European Southern Observatory. And to see it with the equipment that we had in the past, it would take about an hour of staring at the star, building up image after image, and then very elaborately doing computer processing to remove the starlight and so you could see the planet. With GPI, after we got the instrument working, um, we basically turned it on and took an image. And in a minute, we could see a little dot that was corresponding to the planet. And we're actually all standing there staring at it and saying, is that really a planet? No, it should take an hour. And then, nope, we looked at the image, turned it the right way around so we could tell it was really what, um, where the planet was supposed to be. These initial tests are only just the beginning. Thanks to this new technique, Dr. McIntosh predicts not only a dramatic increase in the number of observed exoplanets, 
but also the ability to collect detailed measurements about those planets, of a sort we've never had before. Right now, depending on how you count, there's maybe only five to 10 planets that have been really imaged, that have been actually seen. And we should increase that number to 50 or more. And every time we see a planet, something we can do that the other techniques can't easily is we can tell what it's made out of. When you measure these Doppler shifts, for example, the old way to find planets, all it really tells you is there's a planet there and what its mass is. If you see the light from something, you can actually say something about what its temperature is, what its composition is, and in turn, that might tell you something about how it formed. And really, astronomers have theories, but no confirmed understanding of how all the extrasolar planets out there actually formed in the first place. Dr. McIntosh theorizes that within a few generations of telescopes, we'll finally start to confirm and observe Earth-like planets. 20 years from now, if you built a telescope from the ground up that was almost the size of Gemini but was in space, you really could do an Earth-like planet. And so where we're seeing these little fuzzy red dots that are Jupiters, you'd see a little fuzzy blue dot that was an Earth. And then the same, measure the spectrum of it, see if it has oxygen, see if it has water, see if it has evidence of life. So 20 years from now, maybe we'll find an Earth 2, and 3, and 4. And 40 years from now, who knows what we'll be able to find. Wow. You know, in those five minutes, I feel like I learned two things that I didn't know before. The first was that I, th I always thought that stars twinkle because of the micro saccades or the tiny movements that our eyes make or because of some feature of our retinas or photoreceptors. I didn't realize that there's, you know, a, a more physical explanation for it. I was also surprised that we've only seen five to ten planets outside of our solar system. I, I would have thought that number was a lot, a lot larger. I think that what's going on there is is an emphasis on the word seen, because I think we've detected many more. But in terms of imaging, I think that is really where the new breakthrough is. And that's, of course, as they say in the segment, that's where we're going to learn more about these things other than that they're just a rock or just a lot of gas going in some kind of orbit. So I, I thought I really enjoyed learning about this. I feel like we don't get these kind of dispatches from the really cool cutting edge of science uh, that answers or at least poses the big, big, big questions enough. So I'm, I'm really enjoyed hearing it. Yeah, it's amazing. So there's within the framework of this show, as we're going to be talking about myths and such, there's one myth that has continued to be busted in the literature in the past few months that I think people really need to know about. And that is the idea that you can take supplements of antioxidants like vitamin E and help reduce your cancer risk. Uh, so Chris, you might know in the last couple of years, there have been two large scale studies that have come out uh, showing that not only do vitamin E supplements in particular not reduce your risk of certain cancers, as was thought, uh, but they actually might even increase your risk of cancers, say, of, of the prostate in men, for example. So vitamin E is an antioxidant that is found in you know, healthy foods like whole grains and nuts and beans and such. And it's supposed to counteract the negative effects of free radicals in our bodies, which can lead to mutations and ultimately tumors. Uh, so you'd think that adding more antioxidants would be a good thing as we get older. But paradoxically, it seems that it's not always that, the case. And so a recent study in the journal Science Translational Medicine uh, just this week showed that, in fact, taking vitamin E uh, might increase tumor progression in people who are at risk for lung cancer. So in mice, they found that antioxidants actually can accelerate lung cancer progression. It's pretty amazing. It is, but you know, for the average citizen who listens to news dispatches on subjects like this, it just makes me think, boy, they're going to be having a really, really bad case 
of uh, what should I call it? Medical journalism whiplash, you know, which you get so constantly because people hear or read or consume information suggesting that something might be good for you or something might be bad for you. And then three years, no, that's reversed. This thing is bad for you or this thing is good for you. It's so it's got to be so frustrating. You know, what do you what do you do about something like that? You know, I think really it comes down to understanding the details. You always have to look at the details because not all vitamin E components are bad. So potentially there are some ways in which we can consume vitamin E and it does help protect us from the risk. But in our supplements, the sort of the type of vitamin E that is found in supplements seems to have this nefarious effect. So, you know, the point is to really just because, you know, we think that f vitamin E or, or antioxidants might have a protective effect, just taking any old supplement is not good enough. So we need to be better consumers of the things that we put into our body in large doses. So would that mean that in terms of dietary antioxidants, which as I understand it, uh, aren't they also in, in fruit, in some antioxidants anyway? I mean, in terms of dietary ones, maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So as usual, it sort of comes back to a healthy diet seems to be a much better alternative than pumping yourself full of supplements. Got it. So now with that, let's take a short break and we'll be right back with my interview with Carrie Byron. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Carrie Byron. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. I wanted to start out our conversation by asking you why you think it is that a show like Mythbusters, which really talks about science, is so successful without a single scientist in the co-host. <laughs> well, it's definitely true that none of us are scientists. I think the closest qualification would be Grant because he does have an engineering degree. But, you know, Jamie has a degree in Russian and Adam has a high school diploma. I have film and art and Tori has a film degree. It's it's hard to say what made us successful. I mean, there was a little bit of luck when we first started. Uh, cable television was kind of the Wild West. They weren't doing hosted shows like this. And Discovery was taking a big chance doing shows like us and Dirty Jobs. And... The whole idea behind the show is that we're not scientists. We're using science as a tool and it's not, you know, a talking head telling you facts. It's watching regular Joes kind of experience the problem. And it just happens to be that the best way to explore myth is uh, well, the scientific method. It's the perfect narrative. And so science wasn't necessarily what we were striving for when we set out. It was just something we were using. I think the success is that, well, you can identify with us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways, the way that you guys approach myths is how a lot of children first encounter their their scientific strategies using their curiosity, you know, to build things and to see how things work. And yet in schools, that's not at all how we teach it for the most part. Um, you know, it seems like most people have this idea that science is a boring textbook full of facts that, you know, are immutable and unchangeable and that, you know, that that's what they should memorize. I feel like in the past, it definitely was. It was a memorizing the components of a cell out of a book. But I, I feel like we've really made some progress, uh, maybe through shows like Mythbusters or, or watching people like Steve Spangler, who's, you know, stone cold rock god of the science demo. Um, I, I feel like teachers starting to 
get the point that kids really like to get their hands dirty. And if they can be in- included and involved in the learning process, they actually absorb it. And I, I think that that's one of the successes of Mythbusters is I feel like we may have had a little bit of a hand in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about the show. And I also think that it's not a coincidence that Mythbusters is based in the Bay Area, where there's also a really big culture of makers, of people that want to do things for themselves, um, do-it-yourself projects. What do you think is the relationship between Mythbusters and, and San Francisco in particular? Well, everybody who's on the show has a connection with special effects. Um, Jamie has M5 Industries, which apparently gave everybody their first job in the industry. And Adam was, you know, working over on the Star Wars movies. And so was Grant and Tori. Everybody's special effects. They're all makers and sculptors and creators. And the reason the show is based in the Bay Area is because Jamie's shop is in the Bay Area and he's not going to move. And he brought in Adam. And, you know, I was interning at his shop when the show began, like all of us were makers and that's how we got involved. So, I mean, the Bay Area is just the heart of the the Silicon Valley where people are going to be innovative and trying new things. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how you started out in the show. Um, there's there's a, a, a sort of urban legend that, you know, you sort of hung out long enough at M5 to get hired. And then eventually they put you on television by making a mold of your rear end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of it was kind of like that. I mean, I, I had um, a bunch of jobs and I was trying to find myself and I was working as a receptionist at an advertising agency. And it just it I was trying to figure out a way to be artistic, but still not be starving because nobody was actually buying my sculptures they were a little dark so I one day heard about Jamie's shop and I got a little tour because a friend of mine was taking a, you know, there was an art class being taught out of it and so he brought me along with him and I I was just in heaven there was wood shop and metal shop and you know walls of all sorts of art supplies and it just I, I just kind of had that aha moment where I thought I could be a sculptor and it could be my job I could get into special effects even though practical effects was pretty much at the end of its days. So I walked in to Jamie with a portfolio the next day and begged for an internship, which him being notoriously cheap, working for free is always good incentive for, uh, you know, getting a good education in the industry. So he let me come hang out, be an intern. I did toy prototyping and it just happened to be that, you know, while they started to film the show. I was always there and I was helping on their experiments. And so from the very first experiment, you'll see me in the background. And not long after, they just pulled me out of the show. You know, it seems like a lot of people get their start in the film industry, especially behind the camera in that way, where they start out, you know, learning on the job and then, you know, getting somebody coffee and then eventually going up the, you know, the ladder. And in science, we sometimes see that, too, in the sense that, you know, you have an apprenticeship of sorts when you do your PhD, you're trying to learn from an advisor. Um, So how do you feel that you've grown as an artist by doing this show and being so hands on and sort of all the things that you've learned by building all the things that you've built for Mythbusters? Well, mostly I've gotten a practical education through being surrounded by brilliant people. I've learned so much from Grant and Tori and Jamie and Adam and, you know, even the cameramen, the producers. I've learned so much about how to explore curiosity in a new way, really uh, use methods uh, that, that help me delve deeper into ideas, as well as just practical knowledge of, hey, how do I get the screw out of that board where I already, you know, 
ruined the top of it. You know, just really small tricks to a grander scheme. So that's one of the things that scientists have to do a lot, actually, is, is sort of reinvent how they're going to figure out a problem. Um, that's one thing that I was shocked by when I started doing my PhD is how much of it is creative in the sense that, you know, no one's ever done this before. So you have to figure out the solution, even from an engineering standpoint. Um, so what is the process that you guys go through at Mythbusters and you in particular as a, as a sculptor um, when you're trying to solve a problem like this? Well, luckily, because we all have such different backgrounds and we're all such different people, it lends to a diversity that gives us each a different perspective on a problem. And I find that when we have a community working on a problem, you know, Grant may come up with the uh, technical way to solve it and Tori the practical and I the logical. And between the three of us, we can put together an idea that actually works. So I mean, for me, I really enjoy the community process of figuring out any problem. And so in the beginning, you guys started um, probably just looking at myths that you, the, the five of you or, or the production team came up with. But nowadays, I hear that you solicit a lot of myths from your audience. How does that work? How do people submit myths? Well, actually, since the beginning, I also think this is one of the reasons our show has been really successful is we've always had um, just a lot of involvement with the audience. We've always had a message board and we've always farmed ideas from them. And we've gotten probably 30 to 40 percent of the myths from people. You know, I had um, a, a class, a fifth grade class send in uh, a myth that they found in the Farmer's Almanac from 1933. And we tested it on the show, you know, paper armor, all everything that we, we've tested, I, I swear most of it comes through the internet comes through the message boards and you know we used to at first personally read each and every message but the show's gotten bigger and bigger and it's gone international and so now we've got a team of people <laughs> that reads through the boards and we try to organize them out as to you know what we've already tested and and you know we get the same myth submitted over and over but it just seems like as long as the internet exists we will always have myths to bust. So you don't feel like you're running low on myths. We're running low on ones that are easy, easy to build and inexpensive. Like the prevalent myths that were the ones you'd always heard, like the penny dropping off the Empire States building, like those ones that we've already gone through. Now they're getting they're getting a little more obscure or really, really grand. And so how do you decide for a given episode or, you know, for a given season, you know, which myths you're going to try to tackle? Well, the producers kind of take care of, of nailing down to what myths that we're going to tackle. But it it really comes down to, you know, do we have access to an RPG right now? Um, what kind of, of things do we have at our fingertips that we can work on these particular myths? Because, you know, we have such a long list that we try to, you know, for a long time arrange when it's going to be a good time to bust them. And so you show up, say, you know, 8 or 9 a.m., and it's the beginning of the shooting of an episode. Um, and so walk me through what happens that day. Oh, it's really different for each one. But we do have a planning week where we plan out kind of a loose outline of, of how things could go so that we can get permitting and that sort of thing. So we can make sure that we can get it done. Um, we usually all get together and brainstorm how we're going to test the myth, what machines we're going to build. And then we just jump into it. We, we start usually with a small scale um, to so that we don't waste time building something big because we only have generally around eight days per episode. Wow. And sometimes that has to involve a tow system over an entire runway, plus crashing cars, plus getting cars. So we really try to plan it out as much as possible. But clearly, 
things go wrong and you just kind of have to fly with it. And that's what makes great television, of course. (laughs) So I want to get back a little bit to your role as an artist now. Um, I had read online from some of your other interviews that initially you had continued to show your art uh, when the show was going, um, and then that you decided to become a little bit more private with your artwork. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that, that journey? Well, you know, it's a very time sucking job, you know, it's, it's all day and it's very exhausting and there's a lot of travel. So I found that actually showing was more than I could handle once I had a kid because I give so much energy to my baby girl that, you know, at nights I have very little time for artistic endeavors. And for me, I just like creating the work and showing it is maybe something I'll do in the future. But for now I am just filling up my studio with more and more stuff. So what was it like to have a child in the middle of, you know, a production schedule that's so intensive? You know, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. And it's not the kind of thing I think I could even give advice on because it was sort of I just got pregnant and decided to go with it. And I didn't want to stop working. So I just had to learn how to be careful. And, you know, I'd be going to my doctor saying, all right, so when do I have to stop shooting guns because she has ears? And the doctor would say, hmm. I have never, ever had that question before. I'll get back to you. Come back a little later. How far away do I need to be from an explosion of this much C4? Huh. I've never had that question asked. I have no idea. I don't even know where to refer you right now. I'll get back to you. So, you know, I had to like go to the FBI and ask them about shockwaves and then come back to the doctor and ask about babies. And it, it was a little insane trying to figure out how to stay safe as possible, not be around welding smoke and all while being very exhausted and very fat. I actually set up a mattress underneath my desk. And sometimes I would tell people in one room I was in the other room and vice versa. And I would sleep under my desk and pull the chair in just to get a nap during the day because I was huge. I bet you could write the world's best baby book. Uh, <laughs> what to expect when you're expecting in a completely new way. Well, at least she she came out happy and healthy and she's fine. And I haven't noticed, you know, any real damage. So <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but there are some unique challenges, too, that, that especially now have been, you know, around the Internet about women in science in particular. And, you know, the challenge of raising kids that falls a lot on the mother um, and still continuing to have these high powered jobs. Do you have any advice you can give to young women who might consider leaving science or leaving these difficult um, sort of STEM related jobs because they find that there just isn't a lot of support for them? It's just really sad that that's not something that we take on as a society as all of our problem and all of us coming together for the solution. It shouldn't just be, well, you have a choice. You can have a career or you can have a kid. It's It really should be a community thing. We really should be supporting women to keep that diversity in the workforce because I really would hate to think that women are dropping out just because they want to be mothers. You know, I know it's a really hard choice. I, I, I kind of think we just you know, it's been a long time since they were burning bras, but I think we have so much further to go. I think we really do have to fight to keep those higher level positions and and bring the, the children somehow into the fold. Have have your husband be a real partner and have, have it figured out. Like, I really can't give advice because personally, I am doing the same thing. I, I scrap to stay on the show. I, I scrap to keep being a really good mom. And I, you know, I had to hire a little help myself. 
Sure, sure. And, you know, your interests in promoting science to kids, too, did that come from your experience of being a mom? Or was that something that you were always interested in? You know, it's it's something I've become interested in with the show, because I've met so many mothers who, who were telling me that their girl was interested because I was on the show. And that really touched me because when I was 12 years old, I kind of I kind of stopped being interested in science. It wasn't something that could compete with boys and rock stars and MTV, you know, it just, you didn't have role models, even on TV, the doctors were all men, you know, it just, it didn't happen that you'd see someone on television that was a female. So though role model was something that scared me as a word at first, I just didn't feel worthy of it. I accept it very wholeheartedly now because I I feel like there's not enough women who are in the, 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 you know, science entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so there was a show that you did as well. It was an offshoot of, of uh, Mythbusters called Head Rush that was kind of geared towards kids. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that show and, and what you think, um, how shows like that might be more successful or less successful in terms of targeting the children that, that really are, were interested in learning about science? Well, that uh, Head Rush was a brainchild of mine and Debbie Myers from the Science Channel because both of us really wanted to find that 12-year-old girl that I was and keep her interested in science because I I really came to it so late and I didn't have that aha moment until I'm in my 20s that I really like science. It really can be like art. It really can just be this way of exploring your curiosity. So Head Rush, we were trying to make it bright and colorful and interesting and still keep it within the realm of entertainment. You know, it's it's really hard to put science on TV when you have so many things that you're competing against that, you know, we've got the Kardashians up against us. You know, it's hard to hold a young girl's interest. So we were just doing our best trying to show faces that are an alternative. Um, We were trying to, you know, Science Channel itself is, is always trying to put up faces that like, like Morgan Freeman from Through the Wormhole. When he came onto television, all of a sudden, a lot more African-Americans were watching the Science Channel. Um, Head Rush, I came on, there's a lot more girls. We're just trying to keep the playing field diverse. Mm-hmm. And do you see that there's a trend now? You know, Do you see more shows in the future where, that are going to feature women as role models in science? Or do you see that as still a struggle? I think both. I mean, I think we're going to have more, but it is still a struggle because we are judged very unfairly. You know, when I first joined the show, um, my credentials would constantly be questioned because either I was on the show because I was a girl or because someone thought I was pretty. And then as I got older, all of a sudden I was being judged because I wasn't young anymore and because I wasn't as pretty as I used to be. You know, it's 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 like something that I never saw the guys ever have to go through. Nobody said, Grant's opinion might not matter because, you know, he's pretty. They never said, you know, it was just amazing that I had to kind of work harder and come with more evidence to bring any opinion than my coworkers necessarily did. Right. And that's something that I feel is still very prevalent, both in Silicon Valley and in science and, you know, in these STEM fields is the, is the idea that you have to be a woman and something else. It's not, you know, that, 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 that there's something demeaning about being a woman if you're hired in a, in a position like that. Oh, absolutely. It, it can be sort of frustrating. But at the same time, I feel like I, I was hired also because I bring the diversity of being a woman. So I may have obstacles, but it also has helped me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what what would be your, if Mythbusters ended, what would be your ideal show? To, to would, you, would you continue to go into television or do you think that you would go and do something else? Um, 
I, I really do like science entertainment. And um, currently I'm working on negotiations with the Science Channel to develop new shows within science. So long after Mythbusters, I'm hoping to still be in science entertainment. Great, great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing these new shows. I want to talk just a little bit about some of your favorite myths. This show has now been on, is it 10 seasons or is this 11 that we're in? 10 seasons, but we've been on, I think our first experiment was in 2002 and we started airing 2003. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> the longevity. <laughs> so looking back, can you can you describe one of your favorite myths for us that, that was either busted or proven true? Yeah, it's really tough because we're talking hundreds and hundreds of myths. I always really liked when we got to work with things that were outside of the everyday experience. For instance, sharks. When we got to go diving with sharks, you know, we tested whether they were attracted to flashlights. So we had to go underwater and do an experiment with flashlights on and flashlights off while we chummed the water. And it was terrifying and it was an insane experience. But I went away from that knowing that I had just gone diving in the dark with sharks. <laughs> and yes, they were attracted to flashlights. Um, another time we got to work with RPGs, rocket propelled grenades. That's, you know, unless you're in Afghanistan, it's not likely that a regular girl like me is going to be up close and personal with an RPG. So getting to see those in person and see how different they look from the movies was uh, an, an experience I can take with me. For sure. And now you have another season coming up and including in this week, uh, I was reading about how there are some myths about animals and deterring animals from various parts of your home or your garden. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about what those might be. Yeah, we just aired the episode that was the animal deterrence. And we, you know, more than just regular animals, we, we try to deter snakes. We try to deter bears from getting into your car when you're camping. And we did an entire experiment with kittens, which you would think would be super awesome to have that many kittens around. I got to tell you, anything in quantity totally creeps me out, <laughs> even when it's kittens, like just a room full of kittens. Maybe it's because I'm allergic. I don't know. It was just it started to be creepy crawly when you see a huge pile of them. I know it's weird. You'd think it would be heaven. Be like, oh, fuzzy. No, it was kind of like Barbarella and the little dolls. There's just too many of them. <laughs> so how do you repel kittens? Uh, for me, I just sneeze them away. But uh, <laughs> uh, we tried everything from water bottles. They wouldn't let us try cayenne pepper because I thought that would work. But apparently that's not very nice for the kittens. But um, mostly things like tinfoil kind of freaked them out. Huh. Bizarre. And then tell me about the bear. The bear. We had a real-life grizzly bear that was a trained bear. But, you know, you've got the animal trainers. They have pepper spray in both pockets and it's all an electric fence around it and as as much as you can have a bear under your control they're not entirely under your control so it was it was a little bit terrifying at one point the bear walked through the electric fence towards us and was like forget this thing didn't even care so there was a fence separating you from the bear <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know, we'd go to our minivan, which we had loaded up with fish in a cooler, and then we covered it in our deterrent. And the one that worked was uh, cayenne pepper, because that's what's in the spray. That, ah, that so pepper can, spray really yeah. is pepper. Yeah, it really is pepper. And the bear didn't like that at all. It was sneezing huh. all over the place. <laughs> okay, so that's good advice then. Keep your pepper spray close by. You know what, though? I put my pepper spray, I took that bear mace, I put it on my keychain. 
And I had it on my keychain forever because I figure I live in the city, right? So then I went camping with my brother-in-law and my sister. And at one point I had gone to take a nap in the tent with my baby. And I hear my brother-in-law sort of freaking out. He's like, wait, is this this sunscreen on this keychain, this red stuff, this it's starting to burn. He had sprayed it all over his arms and had rubbed it in, not realizing it was bear mace pepper spray and just started running around screaming, looking for things to pour on it. So it also works on brother-in-laws if you need any. If you need, but yeah, yeah. maybe a little bit torturous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so are there any myths that you guys have busted with Mythbusters that continue to crop up in popular culture that you just want to roll your eyes about? Like, we've busted that. Why are people still believing? Yeah, well, you know, got to figure not everybody's seen the show. I mean, <laughs> I still see shows coming up with the same myths currently. And I'm just like, come on, everybody already knows that one by now. Um, the one that people never believe, though, would be like splitting an arrow. Everybody still thinks you can split an arrow from top to bottom with, you know, perfect accuracy like Robin Hood. We tested that so many times and I couldn't believe that nobody believes that. And they there's a bevy of myths that <laughs> frustrate me that people still believe. And when you go to sort of dinner parties and things like that, do people do people ask you about um, you know myths that they that they believe in, whether or not they're true? Oh yeah, people think that I just have the the Webster's of all myth knowledge. Like I don't know, <laughs> I'd have to test that. <laughs> but there's one myth in particular that's been prevalent, especially in the Bay Area, that maybe is relevant to you since you have a four year old daughter, um, which is of course that that vaccines can cause autism. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about a myth like that, which you know in some ways has really dire consequences. We now have more deaths from things like whooping cough than we did before people started believing that this myth. I know the measles are coming back. Yeah, it's amazing. So how does how does your work, how, what do you feel like you have a responsibility then to go out and sort of talk about a myth like that? Or is it because it's not something that, you know, is something that you cover on your show that, you know, it's, it's relegated to a different, different place? Well, I wouldn't say it's my responsibility, but I think it's the responsibility of any parent to find out the source of where the myth came from, rather than just hearing it on TV or on the radio and, and believing it. Because I mean, I'm, I, I, as I understand it, is that that entire uh, theory came from a discredited paper and a discredited doctor from a long time ago with a sample size of like nine to 13 kids. And now all of a sudden there's this revolution saying that vaccines cause autism. And I, even I, when I first heard it, freaked out a little bit because I, I have a baby and I didn't know the source. And you look on the internet and there's a hundred sites saying that it's true. And I went to my doctor and my doctor was gritting her teeth and she just was like, listen, <laughs> go check out this, this and that, and then come back and tell me if you think the vaccines are bad. And it, it did take a lot of digging to find out that the source was completely unreliable. And it, it really frustrates me that things like this get propagated, this sort of pseudoscience, and still to this day get propagated. So one of the things that Inquiring Minds that we're really passionate about is trying to use science to help shape public policy and to get people's opinions to change. And of course, Mythbusters is right up that alley because that's one of the goals of Mythbusters, I think, is to sort of, you know, help people at least become more critical thinkers and sort of not just take things at face value. But do you see a sort of a role of Mythbusters in terms of changing public policy? Um, or do you see its its primary role as being entertainment and that, that since that's your goal, that that's where you should focus? 
focus. Well, I mean, when it comes down to it, this is a TV show. It's there for entertainment and it's there to sell ads. That's that's what it is. And if it happens that it does some good work as well. And I think the hosts on the show really, really appreciate it when it does. Um, there's definitely been some policy that have changed through uh, experiments that we've done just because they have led to more experiments being done. For instance, uh, explosive decompression, where we shot a bullets inside of an airplane to show that you know, the whole thing's not going to fall apart and people aren't going to get sucked out. They used that episode to start lobbying for uh, marshals to carry guns. So it's it definitely can help, but I wouldn't it is television and I, I really wouldn't base any major scientific papers directly on what we do, but uh, maybe just use it as a seedling to continue. Sure. Well, science, all science starts with a pilot study. So we could argue Mythbusters <laughs> yeah. is like constantly producing pilot studies. Um, but that's really interesting that, you know, that you guys had such an influence and something like, you know, having air marshals carry guns on planes is now ubiquitous, you know, within the airline industry. So, I mean, d don't get me wrong. We've done some experiments that because we can do it down and dirty and quickly, things that may take years to get financing, such as finding out if blue ice can gather up on the outside of the airplane and fall off in a chunk. We did an experiment with that in NASA and the guys at NASA were like, oh my God, you guys just put this together. It would have taken us years to make this experiment actually end up happening. But, you know, they actually got great information off that. And it turns out big chunks of blue ice can fall off the airplane. <laughs> so what, what, how are you guys so successful at doing these making it so quickly? Is it the unique skills that each of you bring? Is it just the big budget that the television production company brings? What is it? It's not a big budget as you would think. We get a lot of stuff for free and we do a lot of hustling. But I, I think that because we bring in experts and we all um, don't have to go through the rigors of, of being funded through, uh, you know, a government agency, you know, we just can go for it. And if it's wrong, somebody will tell us. <laughs> or your insurance company will pull some trades. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, on that note, I wish you a lot of success. And I hope that this season doesn't include any dangerous or injurious, uh, you know, things for you or for any of your co-hosts. It always will. <laughs> well, thanks very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Carrie Byron. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So just want to say again, Indre, spectacular interview with a spectacular guest. It was so funny. I really loved the bear and the brother-in-law. <laughs> She's so inspiring on the women in science question. I left this show believing for certain that there are a lot of 12-year-old uh, girls out there who might have been turned off from science, just as Carrie Byron says she herself was, who are instead turned onto it because of her. And that is such an achievement. And I think it's more than just scientists. I think a lot of these girls will end up being engineers because they see her wield tools and build things. And that's another thing, another part of, you know, the STEM area where girls are underrepresented. So I think it's really great. It is. Thanks so much for doing this one. My pleasure. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. And you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, which is a journalistic partnership that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and newly added The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. 
Today's show also featured Out of the Skies, Under the Earth by Chris Zabriskie and sounds from ERH at freesound.org. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.